this week we're going to begin our wrap-up of this series and start closing this thing up. Uh, if you remember last week, we, we talked about this issue of what were you born for. And we've, we've looked at this verse in Ephesians 2.10 for multiple weeks now, and unbeknownst to me, Ted preached on it this last Sunday, um, this whole idea of success to significance and making an impact and making a difference with your life. And he, he preached right from that same passage. And according to Ephesians 2.10, you're God's workmanship. You've been made by him. You were made for a purpose. He has a plan for you. He has uh, good deeds for you to do that he prepared from beforehand. Ted, Ted used the analogy of uh, it's a to-do list, a divine to-do list, which I, I really like. That God has this to-do list for you, you in specific, you in particular, for you to do for Him. And it's been laid out from before the foundation of the world. And we looked at Esther, uh, the story of Esther last week, and how Esther was born at a specific time, in a specific family, grew up in a specific home for a specific reason. And you remember her uncle Mordecai said, you were born for such a time as this. Jewish girl finds herself queen to the king, and she is in just the right spot at just the right time to be used by God to do something pretty fantastic. And that same thing is true of you and I. We are here for a reason. We were born when we were born, where we were born, and we find ourselves sitting in this room right now for a reason. Uh, Why were you born? So that's, that's what we looked at last week. Wasn't a coincidence that you were born. It's not happenstance that you were in the family you were in, the circumstances you find yourself in. God's not up in heaven wringing his hands going, oh my gosh, what happened? He knows what you're going through. But he has a plan for you. So this week I want to kind of go to the other end. What were you born for? And the question for this week is, what do you want to be remembered for? What do you want to be remembered for? Uh, it's interesting, this, this last week, uh, there's a group of us that are meeting on uh, Saturday mornings for uh, a study, and we had the uh, opportunity to do something I've never really done before. I've heard about doing it, but I've never done it, and that's to write your life eulogy. What an interesting exercise to go through. Write your own eulogy. And so we had to work on that, and then we presented it to one another. And what you have to do is basically think ahead to whenever you might pass from this earth, and what do you want people to say about you? What do you want said at your funeral? And it's interesting, since uh, coming on staff full-time and becoming a pastor, um, one of the things I dreaded more than anything was doing funerals, uh, because I hate funerals. Uh, I'm going to really hate my own, but I, I hate anybody's funeral, but... When I, when I started doing these, one of the things that, that I try to do is meet with the family. And typically, the ones I've done, most of them have been for people I don't know. And that's pretty awkward because you're, you're going to stand up and talk about somebody you know nothing about and try to say wonderful things about them. So all I can do is meet with the family. And so a couple of days before, I try to meet with the family. And one of the questions I ask them is just give me one word. If you had one word to describe your loved one, what would it be? And it's really interesting to go around the, the room, and it takes a little while, and they're in mourning, and they're sad, and it kind of trickles in at first, and then it starts a flood, and then it starts a flow, and pretty soon they're just, they're telling stories. It goes from one word to three words to eight words to, 
And it, it becomes a wonderful time of memories about these individuals. And by the time it's done, I feel like I know these people because of the funny stories and the funny situations and the, the, the descriptions of their loved one. And then it allows me then when I stand up to do that funeral to weave those stories and weave that personality of that person into the funeral. Well, when you're working on your eulogy, um, it's, it's interesting to sit and what do I want people to say about me? How do I want to be remembered? What do I want to be remembered for? And what's interesting, when you sit down with somebody, the loved one of somebody who's lost a family member, very rarely do they say, well, he worked at Lockheed, or he was a great engineer, or he was... They don't talk about their career. They don't talk about... They talk about relational memories. Were they funny? Were they... Um, Personal? Did they spend time with the grandkids? Did they um, relate well? It's not what you did, what you accomplished. It's what kind of person you were. So this morning, I, I want to take that and run with it because in the process of me doing my eulogy, I had to really think, man, if my kids stood up and spoke at my funeral, what would, what would I want them to say? Gee, yeah. Dad was a great guy, but he was never home. You know, gee, J- Dad, Dad would, you know, he provided real well, but he was always at the church, or he was always with somebody else, or he was always teaching a Bible study, or he was always preparing for a Bible study, but, you know, he really wasn't there for me. He never came to my soccer games. He never... No, that's not what I want my kids to say. But you know what? Whatever I want them to say begins now. It begins now. And that's the whole point of this morning as we go through this process because at some point, every one of us is going to end up in one of these. may not look this nice, but we'll end up in one of these. You're going to be relieved, but I tried to get Ben Brummett, my assistant, to find a casket because I was going to have a casket here this morning. I thought, man, what better way to get your attention than a casket sitting in the front of the room? And the only one he could find was from the House of Horrors. Um... And it was one of those old-fashioned ones with a tapered, you know, and I said, that's not going to cut it. I don't want it to look like a cartoon prop. But none of the funeral homes would let us have one because everyone we called said, do you have any idea what these things cost? And he goes, no. And they said, how are you going to pick it up? And he goes, well, probably with a pickup truck. And they said, no, we don't think we're going to let you borrow one of our caskets because um, they cost, you know, six, seven, eight, ten thousand $10,000. Well, we're all going to end up in one of these. And so someday somebody's going to stand up at your funeral and they're going to speak on your behalf. And, it, and at funerals it's really interesting because people give eulogies and, and I think most people mean what they say. But have you ever been to a funeral where, I've never been to one, but I think it would be really interesting to go to a funeral where people stood up and really said what they believed about that person. Now wouldn't that be scary? You know, Ken was a real jerk. You know, he was like the worst employee I ever had. You know, if they, if they stood up and they really told what they felt. Um, I did a, a Google search yesterday on eulogies. And I found a, um, a YouTube link. And it was for one of the, the original members of the Monty Python group at his funeral. And I can't remember which one it was, but 
all of the other living members spoke at his funeral. And it was the most irreverent, um, funny uh, funeral I've ever heard. I mean, these guys roasted it. It was a roast of the guy that was dead. And it was hilarious, but they, they were telling off-color stories about this guy, and they were and the place was dying in laughter, but it was, they told the truth about this guy, what he was really like. He was a cheapskate. You know, he, he never paid his, his debts. He was, you know, he was late to everything. And, but that's not typically what happens at a funeral, is it? It's your last chance to say wonderful things about the deceased. Well, I want what, whatever is said at my funeral, I would like it to be true, not kind of half-truths. I love this from Garrison Keillor. He says, they say such nice things about people at their funerals that it makes me sad to realize that I'm going to miss mine by just a few days. <laughs> you know, God, the one chance I get to hear nice things said about me, I'd like to be there, but you're going to miss it. But I really want whatever's said to be true. So let's talk about this for a second. When your life is in the past tense, okay, there's a point coming when you will be no more. I hate to break that news to you. So when that day comes, when your life has all been lived, what's going to be the memory? What will people remember about you? The people who love you are going to sit back. Somebody, either me or some pastor, is going to sit down across from them and say, tell me about this person. What do you remember about this person? And they're going to look back. They're going to recall. They're going to mourn. But they're also going to remember what will they remember about you? You know, they'll, they'll have snapshots. They'll have videos. Um, they'll look at pictures. Typically, you know, when you walk in to meet with a family, they'll already have photo albums out. They'll have been re- remembering this person. What will they remember? What kind of stories will they tell about you? Will they be happy stories? Will they be sad stories? Will, you, will your kids sit there and go... Yeah, I'm trying to think of a really fond memory. Hmm. Give me, give me a few minutes. Um, you know, or will they just be bubbling over with stories about dad? You know, or will your friends, you know, tell wonderful stories about you? How will you be remembered? And the truth is, they're going to laugh, they're going to cry, smile, sob, all at the same time. But when that pastor, whoever's going to perform the funeral, walks away. What will he have gleaned from that moment? And I know this is kind of a somber thing to be talking about, guys, but it it is so important for us to think about what we want said about us really does begin now. I did this process, and I encourage you, if you've got kids, um, I did this around the dinner table the other night with my kids, an 11-year-old, 13-year-old, and a 16-year-old. And I said, um, hey, if you were to die tomorrow, and that really set the tone, if you were to die tomorrow, how would you want to be remembered? Mm-hmm. And it's really interesting to sit there and, you know, first, my 13-year-old son, who's, I think, way too much like me, everything coming out of his mouth is sarcastic, that I'm funny, that I'm cute, that I'm... And I said, oh, no, no, really, what do you, what do you want him to remember? And he sat there and, I, I guess that I was a good friend. Uh, and then my daughter, and they, they just started throwing out these things. And then I said, but will they? But will they say those things? I don't know. Well, how could you know and make sure that they say those things? Well, I guess to start being a good friend. 
Well, it's a start. See, if we want those things said, we have to start now. It begins now. So here's what I'd like you guys to do. You you knew this was coming. Uh, There's a pattern here. There's some blank sheets of paper on your table. Here's the first thing I'd like you to do. Take a few minutes and think about this. And I really, I know I'm not giving you enough time to really think a lot, but you get the idea. I want you to, on that blank piece of paper, write down some words that you would like people to use to describe you. He was considerate. He was funny. He was outgoing. He was a good father. Use multiple words if you have to. But just write down some adjectives, some words to describe what you want people to say about you. Then I'd like you to start sharing them around the table. And here's the key. Discuss why those words are important to you and what's the likelihood that they're going to get said. Okay, this is what you want said. What's the likelihood that they will be said? And why would those words be important to you? Okay, so take a few minutes and just start jotting down some words. What do you want said about you? What kind of person do you want to be remembered as? Okay. Here's what I want you to do. Take that sheet of paper and stick it in your Bible. Okay? If those are the words that you want said about you at your funeral, at your passing, stick them in your Bible. And let that begin the process of you working on your own eulogy. I, I encourage you to do this, guys. Um, take some time, sit down, and think about how you want to be remembered. So put those words, stick them in your Bible, and add to it as you, as you go along. As I said earlier, you've got to begin with the end in mind. If that's how you want to be remembered, it begins now. It's not just going to happen. People, people may end up saying nice things at your funeral, but I do not want people lying at my funeral. I really don't. I want what comes out of their mouth to be coming from their heart. I don't want my kids going through the motions. I don't want my friends to stand up and say wonderful things about me but not really mean it. So if I want them to mean it, it begins now. So begin with the end in mind. There's two things. As I thought about writing my own eulogy, there's two things that I had to consider. First of all, who you are, who you were. Okay? I had to look back and think, okay, what kind of guy am I now? At your eulogy, they're going to look back and they're going to think about who was Ken Miller. So that's going to be one of the things they, they look at. You know, was he funny? Was, he had a, you know, they'll say things like, you know, hey, hopefully he had a great sense of humor. And they say he thought he did. Um, they're going to, I hope they say things like he loved other people. See, they're going to say things that reflect who you were, at least in their estimation. Who you were. What they remember. You know, they'll say things like, he never met a stranger. Um, I met lots of strangers, I just didn't want to get to know them. Um, my father-in-law is just the opposite. He, he literally is a guy who never met a stranger. He, he, whoever he meets, by the time he's done, he knows them. He knows everything about them. My wife has inherited that trait. You know, she can't stand in the grocery line without knowing 18 things about the people on either side of her. I just want them to get out of my way. Um, but will they say things like that about you? You know, he loved to hunt. Now, he loved to fish. He, he, he loved to whatever. See, it's who you were. 
He was patient to a fault. Now, I know they're not going to say that about me, at least not based on right now. But hopefully by the time I've matured, they'll be able to say that. So who you were and then what you believed in. Everything falls, I really think, falls into these two categories. Who you were and what what did you believe in. For instance, he was a good dad. He was a family man. What that reflects is you believed in the family. You believed in the importance of the family. You believed in spending time with your wife and spending time with your kids and going on vacations and throwing the ball and whatever constitutes family to you. See, that's what you believe in. They'll say he was a hard worker. That doesn't necessarily mean that you spent all your time at work. It's just that whatever you did, you believed in being a hard worker. That's one of the things I try to instill in my kids is that, man, work hard. Whatever you do, if you're going to play soccer, work hard at it. If you're going to, you know, do a chore, work hard at it. You know, my son is, he's started a little mowing business. And uh, it drives me nuts. Because his attitude is just get it done and get a pay, you know, pay me. And my attitude is do it well. You know, do it right. Be proud. He's like, Dad, it's okay. No, it's not okay. We're going to go back and do it again. Well, I've already got paid. I don't care. It reflects on you. It's what you believe in. Is the reason you're a hard worker just so you can make a lot of money? Or is it because you believe in the integrity of hard work? It's what you believe in. If they say, man, he loved being at church... That reflects a belief in the importance of the body of Christ coming together. What do you believe in? He was always reading his Bible. He was a man of the word. You know, I really want my kids to be able to say that about me. That man, with all his faults, my dad really loved the word of God and believed in the word of God. That reflects what you believe in. See, it's, it, they're going to talk about who you were and they're going to talk about what you believed in. You know, they'll be able to say of some men, man, he was so proud of his military service. You know, it was neat Sunday when we recognized all the different people in our church who have served in the military services. Um, it always sends chills up my spine, you know, to see those men and women stand and be able to applaud them and to praise them for their service. And they're all proud of it. It's something they believed in. It's something that they did, and they believed in doing it. So... Will they be able to talk about the things you believed in? What you really felt strongly about? Again, your eulogy, guys, is being written now whether you put it on paper or not. You're writing your eulogy whether you put it on paper or not. Because what people remember about you is what you're doing. It's what you pursue your kids, as I, as I thought through this process in writing mine, I had to think about, man, what would my kids write? If I got hit by a bus today, what would my kids' memory be of me? And that's a sobering thought. You know, the other night, I'll give you an example. In, this is, uh, my, my, I'll air my dirty laundry. The other night, I come home, it's a Friday night been a long week, long day, had a busy morning the next morning, and my wife kind of warned me that my 21-year-old daughter was coming to the house with a whole bunch of her friends. Okay, that was bad enough. Um, 
but that we have this huge screen that used to belong to my dad. It's like 15 by 15. Okay, big old screen to project stuff on. Well, she's going to bring these friends over, and she wants to put this screen up in our backyard with this projector we have so she can show a movie. The only problem with that scenario is I'm the only one that knows how to put up the screen. So my wife tells me this, and I immediately just get tense. And I'm like, it's, I said, it's not going to happen. That was my, that's, the words came out, it's not going to happen. She goes, well, I'm just warning you, she's expecting it to happen. And I said, well, when did this get decided? And she said, well, she's been talking about it all week. And I said, well, she didn't mention it to me. So it ain't going to happen. I mean, I was just, I was, I was already angry. So she comes walking in the door. She walks in my office. She says, Dad, where's the screen? I said, it's not going to happen. <laughs> and her countenance, she just, what? I said, it's, it's, it's not going to happen. She said, Dad, all these kids are coming over. It's got to happen. I said, you should have told me earlier. And, I mean, she just, she was crushed. And that kind of got to me a little bit. And, and then I said, you know, and the other problem is the speakers that go with us, the, 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 they're gone. The speakers, we don't have speakers. Dad, we've we got to do something. Don't we have any speakers? I said, no, there's no speakers. And I was doing everything in my power to make this not work. And then finally I gave in. And I said, okay, we'll put it up. But here's how I do that kind of thing. I'm going to make sure you know this is a hassle. And so we're, we're out in the backyard. It's dark. And I'm putting the screen up. And, and there's a couple of guys in the room that know the screen I'm talking about. This is not a fun project. And so we're out in the backyard. And I'm, and I'm, I'm reading my daughter the riot act. Why didn't you tell me this? And why did you surprise me? And, you know, I've had a long week. And it's, I'm tired. And I've got to get up at 530 in the morning. And, I, and she, you know, she's just, like, hammered. And, and I said, you know, and you've got all these people coming over. We've got two dogs. You know what dogs leave in the yard. And it's all over the yard. And, she, you know, you didn't clean this stuff up. And. And this is, you know, I love God. As I'm saying those words, I'm putting the screen up and my hand hits something. <laughs> and I looked down and I went, and it just about sent me over the edge. You know, I looked down and I, God, and it's all over my hands. Well, this, this whole, fiat, yeah, what, you know, Truett. <laughs> this whole evening is a fiasco. And I was such a jackass, excuse my French, to my daughter that I, I crushed her spirit. And it, it, it just bugged me all night long. I mean, I went to bed and I couldn't sleep because I kept thinking, what a jerk you are. What, what a, you know, you couldn't even serve your daughter. And so I had to call her the next day and apologize. And she, and she was still crushed. She, you know. She was embarrassed. If, if I had died that night putting up that screen, you just, just collapsed. And I'm surprised God didn't just take me. You know, okay, I've had enough with you. What would my daughter's memory have been of me? What a jackass. Now, my daughter would have gutted it up and said wonderful, glowing things about me. But what would have been in her heart? My dad cares more about himself than anybody else. That is not how I want to be remembered. But how do I change that? I begin now. I, wrote my, I was writing my eulogy that night. And I don't care how many flowing, glowing things I want to write about myself. 
I was writing my eulogy, and that memory is burned in the brain cells of my 21-year-old daughter. And the only way I'm going to erase it is to change the way I act the next time. You're writing it now. How you will be remembered in death is dependent on how you live your life now. How you live your life now. See, all of this has to do, guys, with this whole getting in the game, being significant, serving, you were created for a purpose. How you live your life determines how you're going to be remembered, what you're remembered for. The memories of those who love you will be based on the impressions you leave with them. What are the impressions you're leaving? Good, bad, indifferent? If you get hit by a bus walking out of the building today, will everybody go, who was he? Will you be missed? Will they really care? Or will you just, the void you leave just kind of be filled by somebody else or something else? What's the impressions you're leaving? Randy Milholland says this, in the end, we decide if we're remembered for what happened to us or for what we did with it. We'll be remembered for what happened to us or for what we did with it. See, a lot of you guys are going through some tough times. You're going through some struggles. It could be financial, relational. It could be how are you going to handle it. See, I could have handled Friday night a whole lot differently. I could have died to myself. I could have put up the screen. I could have shut up my mouth and left a totally different impression with my daughter. How I handled it. That's how I will be remembered. How you handle the situations you go through. I want us to take just a few minutes and flip over to Hebrews chapter 11. I tried to find in the scriptures a eulogy that we could look at this morning. And I really couldn't find one. Most of the ones you find, you know, if you go back and look at the kings, they're not really good. Um, Most of the kings failed to serve God, and so their eulogies are not really glowing. So I was drawn to Hebrews chapter 11, which is that great hall of faith where we look at some of the great patriarchs. And these are people who model the life of faith. And in it is the story of Abraham. And I want us just to look at that, starting at verse 8, and see what was remembered about Abraham. Because I I think this is his eulogy. Begin with with verse 8. It says, By faith Abraham, when he was called, obeyed by going out to a place which he was to receive for an inheritance. And he went out not knowing where he was going. By faith he lived as an alien in the land of promise, as in a foreign land, dwelling in tents with Isaac and Jacob, fellow heirs of the same promise. For he was looking for the city which has foundations, whose architect and builder is God. Now picture, try to picture in your mind, you're standing at a funeral, and it's Abraham's funeral. And somebody is standing up talking about this, and talking about this guy. For he was looking for the city which has foundations, whose architect and builder is God. By faith, even Sarah, his wife, received ability to conceive even beyond the proper time of life, since she considered him faithful who had promised. Therefore also there was born of one man, and him as good as dead at that, as many descendants as the stars of heaven in number, and innumerable as the sand which is by the seashore. Then he goes on, he talks about all the people in the hall of faith here. He says, all these died in faith without receiving the promises, but having seen them and having welcomed them from a distance and having confessed that they were strangers and exiles on the earth. For those who say such things make it clear that they are seeking a country of their own. 
And indeed, if they had been thinking of that country from which they went out, they would have had opportunity to return. But as it is, they desire a better country that is a heavenly one. Therefore, God is not ashamed to be called their God, for he has prepared a city for them. Then back to Abraham. By faith, Abraham, when he was tested, offered up Isaac. And he who had received the promises was offering up his only begotten son. It was he to whom it was said, In Isaac your descendants shall be called. He considered that God is able to raise men, even from the dead, from which he also received him back as a type. See, I think this is his eulogy. It's a picture of Abraham looking back, written by the writer of Hebrews, looking back on the life of this great patriarch, and it's a glimpse of how he lived his life. And so I just want to just look at a few of the things that jumped out of the pages at me. First of all, he was obedient. What's the very first thing it says? By faith, Abraham, when he was called, did what? He obeyed. Now, are they going to be able to say that about me? Are they going to be able to say that about you? Man, when he was called, he obeyed. See, that's a picture of Abraham. When he was called, he obeyed. So he was obedient. Will they be able to say of you and I, man, when it was said and done, he was obedient to God. He did what God called him to do. Secondly, he trusted God even when he couldn't see the outcome. Where do we get that? It says he went out not knowing where he was going. See, I'm not like that with God. Hey, God, I'll go, but you better draw me a map, and I want to know what the outcome is going to be. And then I'll decide if I'm going to do it. See, Abraham, it says, he left and went without knowing where he was going. God just said, get up, leave Ur of the Chaldees, and get going. And I'm going to take you to a new place. Never been there before, didn't know what it looked like. But he did it. See, he trusted God. Will it be able, will you be able to have said about you, he trusted God, even though he didn't know what the outcome would be? I also found that he was content to wait on God's promise and timing. It says he lived as an alien in the land of promise, as in a foreign land. See, this guy, he was, he was content to wait. I am so discontent waiting on God's promises. You know, I, okay, God, I, I know you're faithful. I, I know you said you're going to bless me. I know you're going to do this. I know you're going to do that, but do it now. But no, this guy was content to wait on God's promises. He goes on and says, having confessed that they were strangers and exiles on the earth. I hate to break the news to you, but this is not your home. This is not where you belong. You belong in another place. But are you content to wait for it and bide your time here doing the works you've been called to do? Are you content? Man, I wanted, I wanted to be able to say, be said of me, I was content to wait on God's promises. I also saw that he believed in the faithfulness of God. It says, speaking of his wife, and I think in reference to him as well, Sarah herself received ability to conceive even beyond the proper time of life. She was old. He was old. But he and his wife believed in the faithfulness of God. Why? Because they considered him faithful who had promised. Yeah, they had some moments in there where they doubted, where she laughed when she got the word that you're going to conceive. But they kept hoping in the promises of God. They believed that God's faithful. Will your kids be able to stand up and give testimony? Will your wife, will your friends be able to say, you know, this guy believed 
in the faithfulness of God. They trusted him. They believed in him. He also had an eternal perspective, guys. Not a temporal one. And you and I are so wrapped up in the world around us. Abraham had a, a, an eternal perspective. It says he was looking for the city which has foundations, whose architect and builder is God. What does that mean? He's looking for heaven. He's looking for a better place. He's not wrapped up in all the stuff here. See, this is the guy that lived in tents. This is a guy who never really got to occupy anything. But he was okay with that because he had an eternal perspective. God's going to take care of me. And when I'm gone, God's going to take care of my descendants. And he's going to bless them. And he's going to make them prolific. He had an eternal perspective. It speaks of all of the, the, the patriarchs. They are seeking a country of their own. Another country. Another land. Eternal perspective. I want my kids to be able to say, my dad was not wrapped up in the world. Yeah, I can say of my dad... My dad could care less about the things of this world. He has an eternal perspective. My dad is 86 years old. It is not, I don't know when it's going to happen, but I'm going to stand at my dad's funeral unless the Lord tarries or I go first. And I've had to think, what do I want to say? There are so many things. It's going to be the longest funeral on earth because of what I have to say about that man. But he's got an eternal perspective. He could, his house could burn down tomorrow and he would smile and laugh and say, good. Who cares? He does not care. Why? Because he's, he knows there's a better place. They desire a better country, a heavenly one. Abraham was willing to give God everything he had. Boy, this one really hurts. See, Abraham, when he was tested, offered up Isaac, his son. Who is Isaac, his son? The heir, the promise. The key to the seed, the blessing, everything. But when God said, take your son, your only son, and stick him up on an altar and sacrifice him to me, what was he willing to do? Okay. I don't understand this. I'm not really sure how this is going to work out, but here you go. He was willing to give God everything. He who had received the promises was offering up his only begotten son. See, that's important. Only begotten son. It's the only son he had. Now, he had the, uh, the son from a handmaiden, but God already said, no, I'm not, no, that ain't going to happen there. It's this one. Give him to me. What are you willing to give to God? What are you willing to give up that God wants? Also, he had faith in the covenant-keeping God. It says he considered that God is able to raise people even from the dead. You know, and this fascinates me that he had that kind of faith to say, I'm going to give my son and God could raise him from the dead if he wants to. Why would he think that? Because God had made a covenant. God had told him, I'm going to bless you through this young man. Now, see, I sit there and I get logical and I go, well, if you kill him, how are you going to do that? Tell me that one, God. See, Abraham said, he'll just raise him. I guess he'll have to raise him from the dead. How much faith do you have in your covenant-keeping God? See, God's made a covenant with you. Do you trust Him to keep His covenant? He did. Here's the second part. This is a misnomer. It's not a discussion. hate to break that to you. Take another sheet of paper. And I'm, I'm dead serious about this one, guys. 
I want you to write down the words you don't want said about you. He was a jackass. Um, He was impatient. He was unkind. He was inconsiderate. He was self-centered. He was... Man, I could sit here and... I've got tons of them. Write down on a clean sheet of paper the words you don't want said about you at your funeral. That would devastate you. And we're not going to discuss this one, guys. This is between you and God. And I want every guy to do this. Even if it's painful, do it. There's a method to my madness. So take just a few minutes to do that. This is my funeral. We gather here today to celebrate the life of Ken Miller, faithful and loving husband to Julie, with whom he gratefully and gladly shared the very best years of his life. Dedicated father, friend, and mentor to Taylor, Maggie, Catherine, Molly, Hudson, and Mandy, six incredible young people whom he tried to love and lead and who he hopes will carry on a legacy of dedication to Christ and his cause. Passionate churchman who dedicated his life to shepherding the flock committed to his care at Christ Chapel Bible Church unapologetic lover of the Word of God who faithfully tried to teach it, live it, share it, and protect it. Lover, father, friend, pastor, teacher, counselor, mentor, guide, companion. All these words in some way describe the man we knew as Ken Miller. But those are merely the roles he played in relation to us. They are not who he really was. Because behind all those roles was a man who desired to be a disciple of Jesus Christ. He was a learner, a follower, a student, a lover of Jesus Christ. He was a yoke fellow with his Lord and Savior. Sure, there were times he fought to go his own way, but he never desired to get out of the yoke. He could be stubborn. He could be a slow learner. He could be lazy. But ultimately, he would always submit to the lesson of the yoke, learning from the one who loved him enough to die for him, because Ken was not a quitter. He was a hard worker who never gave up. He never threw in the towel. He remained in the race regardless of the pain, the cost, or the consequences. He never gave up or gave in. He fought the good fight. He finished the race. He ran to win. He was never the fastest or the strongest, but you could always count on him to be in the game. He was a giver who never felt like he gave enough. He was a lover who felt like he he never loved enough. He was a counselor who never felt wise enough. He was a father who felt like he was never there enough. He was a pastor who never felt qualified enough. He was a teacher who never felt smart enough. He was a friend who felt he didn't value friendship enough. You see, Ken was never satisfied. I don't mean he was discontent. I mean he was never willing to settle for the status quo. He knew the standard set before him was a high one. Nothing less than Jesus Christ himself. So he knew he had not arrived. He was a work in progress, and he sometimes grew impatient with the speed of the transformation. Yet every person in this room was touched by his life in some way. Because Ken was available, approachable, believable, reliable, relatable, usable, knowable. Most of all, he was moldable. He was willing to be changed by God because he wanted to be used by God. He longed to be a man after God's own heart, a mighty man who was used by God to accomplish mighty works 
good works which God had prepared for him beforehand. And he was. He never knew how many lives he had impacted. He never realized how much he was used of God. But he knows now. Because God welcomed him into his kingdom with the words, Well done, good and faithful servant. And he is enjoying a well-deserved rest. Thank you, Ken, for walking the life of faith before our very eyes and leaving a path for us to follow. You will be missed. Will you be missed? Will you be missed? See, I want to be missed. But I want to be missed for the right reasons. I want my kids to miss me for the right reasons, because of my leadership, because of the model that I sent. I want my kids to miss me. I want my wife to miss me for far more than there's a space in the bed next to her now. Will you be missed? Will you leave a void when you're you're gone in those who love you, those you work with, your neighbors? Or will they not even know? What do you want to be remembered for? Is it your faith in God? If it is, it begins now. Is it your sacrificial spirit? See, Friday night I failed miserably. But it's not too late. What do you want to be remembered for? Your eternal perspective? It starts now. It starts this morning. It starts today. Your commitment to the kingdom. What are you committed to, guys? How do you want to be remembered? Is it your contentment that I don't need to have all the stuff the world has to offer? I am content with God, and that's enough. What will you be remembered for? Is it your obedience to his word and to his will for your life? This is, all of this stuff is so critical as we wrap up this series on getting in the game because if we don't step back and say how I'm remembered starts now, we will continue to go the route we're going. And we may have wonderful things said about us, but they will be tongue-in-cheek and not said with meaning and not said with heart. So how, you, how you'll be remembered begins now. Here's what I'd like you to do. And this is rare for us to do this, and I know some of you guys are going to, you know, balk, but that's okay. What I would like you to do is I'd like every one of you to come up, take that sheet of folded up paper, and I want you to stick it on the altar up here. And I want you to stay here, and if you can, I want you to kneel here, just in this area up here. If you can't kneel, that's fine. If you want to stay in your seat, if you physically can't do that. But I would love for you to at least come and bring that sheet of paper and lay it on this altar, because here's the deal, guys. I want us to leave that behind. Whatever the words are you put on that sheet of paper, impatient, angry, never there, lousy father, whatever those words are, we're going to leave that behind today. And we're going to move ahead. We're going to move on. So bring those up here right now. I know this is awkward. We've got just a few more minutes to do this, and we're going to wrap it up. But just stay up here, and if you can kneel, kneel. If you need to stand, stand, and we're going to close in prayer. Just stick them out here, up here, and we're, we're just going to, I'm going to destroy them. Yeah, I'm not going to, yeah, I'm not going to decipher your handwriting. Just fold them up. And if you can kneel, kneel. If you need to stand, stand. You know, there's a passage over in Philippians 3, 13 and 14 that says, Brothers, I do not consider myself to have taken hold of it. Think about the first words you wrote down. 
But one thing I do, forgetting what is behind the sheets on this altar and straining towards what is ahead, I press on towards the goal to win the prize for which God has called me heavenwards in Christ Jesus. We are going to press on, guys. And we're going to live with the end in mind. That's my pledge to you. I want this eulogy to be true. I want those words you wrote about yourself to be true. Father, we come to you this morning. And I want to thank you for these men. I want to thank you, Father, that we are works in progress. And we are not, right now, what you plan for us to be. But you are transforming every single one of us. It's just that some of us are more stubborn than others. And you are using circumstances. You are using other people. You are using everything around us to mold us and make us into the men that you want us to be. And you are trying to use your word. But some of us aren't in it. And some of us don't believe it. So, Father, whatever words got written down on these sheets of paper, we give them to you. Father, those are not who we want to be. That is not how we want to be remembered. We want to be men who leave a void when we're gone. We want to be men who are remembered for what we believed in. Men of God, men of the Word, men of faith, men of integrity... Men who lived out what they say they believe. And we will be missed. Father, whatever needs to happen in each one of our lives, let it start today. Let it start today. And let us live with the future in mind, with the end in mind. That, Father, every single one of these men, if we were to do his funeral tomorrow, we could stand up and say, he was a man of God. He was a man after God's own heart. He was a mighty man. He was a warrior for God. He was powerful. He was faithful. He was righteous. He was holy. He was blameless. Let us be those kinds of men that when we are gone, the world will feel a void. Father, thank you that you are so patient. Thank you that you are so loving. And may we, with Joshua, be able to say, if it is disagreeable in your sight to serve the Lord, choose for yourselves today whom you will serve, whether the gods which your fathers served, which were beyond the river, or the gods the Amorites in whose land you are living. But as for me and my house, as for me and my house, we will serve the Lord. Father, I give you these guys, I give you myself. And may today, may today, Father, November the 14th, be a turning point in our lives. And we pray this in the name of Jesus Christ, your Son and our Savior. Amen. Amen. Guys, you are dismissed. We do not meet next week, but we will meet the week after. So have a great day, and may God bless your day.